The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Woman in the Sky, Episode 2. Abner bounced the ball against the floor. Sweat dripped from his nose as he contemplated its movement. Up and down, floor to right hand, right hand to floor, floor to left hand. The ball traveled so cleanly that it seemed to trace an orange triangle in the air. Abner glanced up at his opponent. The other man was taller, his long arms coated in blonde hair, giving him the appearance of an albino ape. He splayed his body into an X. From the bleachers, Abner looked like no match for the gold-haired boy. Abner looked shorter, more compact, his arm muscles lean and adolescent. Suddenly, Abner dashed sideways. The other boy mirrored the movement, but Abner fainted, swiveled around, bounced the ball hard, and fired his shot. The ball arced lethargically, then swished through the basket and dropped to the floor. The other boy retrieved it, took his place on the edge of the court, and tried the same maneuver. Yet Abner was too quick. He smacked the ball away, chased it a few steps, regained control, and zigzagged across the floorboards. He leapt upward, and the ball seemed to float out of his hand, depositing itself in the hoop. Shucks, yelled the towhead as he slowly crossed the court, arms swinging. He snatched up his towel and shook his head. I've said it before, Ab. You're wasting your time in the sticks. You should be trying out for the Celtics. Abner found his own towel and patted down his nape. If only, he murmured. Oh, you're good enough. Anybody can see that. Maybe one-on-one. -on -one. You're too humble, said the towhead. Say, doll, what do you think? Abner looked confused until he spun around and looked into the empty bleachers. There, tucked into the shadowy corner of the court, sat Elizabeth. She perched on the polished wood plank, dressed in her coat and black beret, a mug pressed between her gloved hands. Do you think he's got the stuff? called the towhead. Maybe he ought to be pro. Elizabeth rose from her seat and started to descend the steps. Looks like an expert to me, she said. See? said the towhead. He clapped Abner on the shoulder and meandered toward the exit. The room felt hollow and dark. A single lamp hung from the ceiling, illuminating a circle of floor. Elizabeth wandered into the light. Her smile was warm but strange. If I didn't know better, said Abner, stretching his towel over his shoulder, I'd say you looked for Tracht. You say the sweetest things, Elizabeth replied, sipping from her mug. It means pensive. Elizabeth nodded, watching the steam evacuate her coffee. Well, you don't know better, because I'm very much Vertracht. Are you all right? said Abner, his voice softening as he stepped toward her. Is there anything I can do? Actually, there is. Oh, just name it. You can come with me to the bell tower. The bell tower? Abner said. The one in the chapel? Well, it's more above the chapel, but yes, I presume that's the one. What's, what's up there? Elizabeth grimaced. I don't know, actually. That's why I want you along. 
It was strange watching Abner transform. On the court, he was unstoppable. His lithe body sashayed past rival players, and the ball seemed to dribble itself. When he made his shots, the ball never grazed the basket's rim, but eased soundlessly through. Yet the moment Abner stepped back into real life, his vim evaporated. He collapsed into himself. His very soul appeared to palsy. When? Nine o'clock. So you have just enough time to shower and change. I don't know. Abner rubbed a palm against the speckled stubble of his cheek. I have an exam tomorrow. Abner, Elizabeth chided. Hearing his name was all it took. He fled to the shower room, and ten minutes later, he was dressed in bulbous layers of winter clothes. I'm not going to regret this, am I? He said half-heartedly. Have you ever regretted spending time with me? To this, Abner had no response. They proceeded silently through the door into the dark and frigid quad. When they reached the chapel's large front doors, Abner stammered, Can you at least tell me what this is all about? Elizabeth paused on the chapel's steps, then turned toward Abner, looking hesitant. Someone invited me here. Who? I don't know, but whoever it was, he gave me three newspaper clippings. Newspaper clippings? What about? Have you ever heard of Magella's Abbey? Abner rubbed his chin with his gloved fingers. Isn't that somewhere nearby? It's about twenty miles away, confirmed Elizabeth. Well, it seems they've had some problems. An outbreak? Abner murmured. You could say that. Of what? The grip? Elizabeth groped a twisted iron handle and pushed the chapel door open. Of murder, she said. The nave was silent and dark except for rows of candles glowing at the far end. A wooden statue of the Virgin Mary loomed above the altar, an emaciated Christ languishing in her lap. Elizabeth crossed to the corner, where she slipped through a door and began to ascend a wood staircase. The stairwell was pitch black, and it only took an instant for Abner to stub his toe on an unseen step. Ow! he whined. Don't you have a light? Unless I've missed my guess, Elizabeth said, there should be one above us. Exactly as she expected, a warm glow seeped into the stairwell, emitted from an opening in the ceiling. Elizabeth climbed the final steps and found herself in a dusty attic. Abner peeked his head into the space, surveyed the shadowy walls and weathered wood floor, and drew a breath of surprise. Doctor, he spluttered. Doctor O'Malley? O'Malley sat at a wood table, his face lit by a kerosene lantern. He pulled back the sleeves of his thick wool sweater and reached toward a teapot set on a cloth napkin. Good evening, Elizabeth, O'Malley said gently as he proceeded to pour the tea into two cups. Mr. Cohen, is it not? 
Uh, me? whispered Abner. Yes, sir. I'm sure Miss Crown appreciates your courage, said O'Malley. But you needn't linger. You have my word, I'm no threat to her. Most of Abner's body was still inside the stairwell, and only his face and hat were visible from the open trap door. His eyes darted from Elizabeth to the professor, then back again. At last Elizabeth said, It's fine, Abner. Thank you for escorting me. You're sure? Elizabeth shot a look at O'Malley. Am I sure? O'Malley smiled bemusedly. If Elizabeth doesn't knock on your door at seven o'clock tomorrow morn, ring the police station in town. Uh, all right, then, Abner said, then sank into the floor and disappeared. They could barely hear him faintly call up, Good night, Elizabeth. She crossed to the table and seated herself in the empty folding chair. Elizabeth touched the rim of her teacup with a finger, then lifted it and said, Slancha. O'Malley leaned back in his chair, tipped his cup, and replied, And cheers to you. Elizabeth sipped the bland liquid and set the cup down. So what are we toasting, Professor? If you're conscripting me for the Fenian cause, you should know that I don't have a drop of Irish blood. The physician's smile broadened as he took up his bifocals and slipped them over his ears. Elizabeth had never really looked at O'Malley before. He was young for a professor, a beanpole, who crossed his legs and allowed one arm to fall over the back of his chair. His cheekbones were sharp, which would have seemed handsome if they weren't so angular. His scarf was unfastened and draped over his shoulders like a clerical stole. As ever, his hair was quaffed raffishly to the side, as if a strong wind had slicked it down. His spectacles were small and rectangular, the frames decorated with little curls of wire. Perhaps it was his Celtic fashion or tranquil demeanor, but Elizabeth had never realized how bohemian O'Malley was. I have a theory, he said, and drew a pipe from his satchel. I think you are fond of medicine. I see you have a talent for it. But try as you might, you have never pictured yourself a physician. Elizabeth's eyes dropped to the table. Coolly, she replied, Why would you say that? O'Malley struck a match and inserted its flame into the pipe. The tobacco crackled in its depths. There is no question of your skill, said O'Malley, through the webs of smoke. A duller man might think you shy, but I see not a timid girl, but quite the opposite. I think, Miss Crown, that you are bored. Elizabeth bristled. She looked at O'Malley and blinked, but the long pause discomfited her, and she looked away again. You needn't say so, said O'Malley in his soothing voice, but I believe I'm right. For yes, I think you'd ably wield a scalpel. You could sew a wound without much practice. And in a few years, God willing, you could open a clinic, or make house calls, or play midwife to expectant mothers. One day, your peers might see past your womanhood and pay you an honest compliment. And if that's what you desire, then God speed, Miss Crown, for it is a noble calling, and you're a brave lass to outshine these parvenus. 
When O'Malley paused again, Elizabeth knew she could do anything in that moment. Deny it. Storm off. Laugh at his presumptions. Yet she felt immobile, mute, lashed to her seat. She could barely summon the voice to reply. But... A satisfied grin slinked across O'Malley's lips before it was lost in a gust of smoke. What did you think of those clippings? Morose, said Elizabeth. Murder generally is. But were you not intrigued? What did you think intrigued me? Let's review the facts, O'Malley said, swiveled on his heel and rubbed his chin with his free hand. A nun is asleep in her cell. She's old, more than eighty years. Her senses are dull. She can't hear well, or so I would assume. Her tired old gams can't run at any rate. If someone enters the room, she's helpless. There's no escape. Then someone does. Late at night, the killer grabs her throat, holds it tight, and squeezes the life from her. The one defense she has, her voice, is smothered. Her death is absolutely silent. O'Malley curled his lips, then shrugged. A child could do it. Except, O'Malley nodded coaxingly. Except? The door was locked, said Elizabeth. She had no closet. There was no place to hide. O'Malley gesticulated with his pipe. Then what's the simplest answer? Someone else had a key. Ah, sighed O'Malley. Of course, a master key, perhaps. Which points to what suspect? Someone inside the convent, another nun. O'Malley shook his head in a brooding way. What if I told you there is no master key? There are no copies. Just suppose for now. We remove it from the equation. What then? It's an old convent, asked Elizabeth. At least a hundred years, I'm guessing. Oh, at least. That rules out an air duct, and the police would have found a secret passage. Certainly they would have. Stumped yet. Elizabeth drained the last of her tea and started to pour a second cup. But there were two more clippings, that is, two more murders. Then let's proceed, said O'Malley. A nun is alone in a garden. The walls are high. The doors are closed. It's the middle of the day. It's late autumn, so nothing is growing. Why is she there? Elizabeth waved a hand dismissively. I don't know. Who can say? Perhaps she wants to be alone, said O'Malley. To meditate. She finds it peaceful among the dead tomato plants. Perhaps she watches birds. Elizabeth shifted uncomfortably in her chair. Fine, she likes it there. It's a, a what? A sanctuary. It is a sanctuary. Until someone appears. The killer, that is. The killer ambushes her. The nun is cornered. She's only sixty years, but still it's hard to run. She screams, but already it's too late. The killer fetches a pitchfork from the wall. The spikes pierce her habit like a skewer. Ten times the fork cuts through the poor woman's body. Her sisters, standing in the nearby court, hear her wails of pain. They open the door. They see the fork, the nun lying in a pool of blood. But no one else is there. How could this be? 
I don't suppose it was suicide, grumbled Elizabeth. No other exit? The garden is enclosed. The outer walls are ten feet high, and the dividing wall is higher. I've seen it myself. There's no way out. What about the third? said Elizabeth. The article was vague. The third, said O'Malley. The strangest of all. By now the nuns are terrified. They fear for their lives. Two of their sisters have perished, and no one knows how. They pray, of course. Surely this is devil's work. But they are practical as well. They walk in groups. They observe an early curfew. They sleep two in a cell so that no one is ever alone. Except, said Elizabeth, the Mother Superior. The Mother Superior, echoed O'Malley. She spends time alone, but she hides in her study. Her most trusted sisters guard the door. It is the only door, and it is locked from the inside. The nuns guard this door in shifts. This is the only way in. The study is the uppermost room, on the fourth story of the Abbey's tallest building. Where could she be safer? But someone got in, said Elizabeth. Again, a room with no wardrobe, no cupboard, nowhere to hide. Night falls. The abbess is alone. The nuns stand guard, too afraid to doze. All of a sudden, someone shrieks. They hear a commotion, a slam, a crash and then the words uttered by the Mother Superior. You! You're the one who did it! The guards bang on the door, but they can't get in. They have no spare key. They can only listen as their Mother Superior struggles inside. She screams and screams. They can hear her voice traveling slowly across the room, and then they hear a final cry, loud at first, then receding into silence. But you know the reason for that. Because she fell, croaked Elizabeth. She fell out the window. No, corrected O'Malley. She was thrown from the window. She fell four stories and crashed through the roof of a tool shed. When they found her, her bones were splinters. No ladder, said Elizabeth. No fire escape. No other entrance. None at all. What was inside? If there was a struggle, then... Good question, said O'Malley, and he tapped his pipe against a vertical beam, letting the ashes spill to the floor. He ground their embers into the boards and blew into the pipe's bowl to cool it. What did they find once they'd broken down the door? A simple table where the abbess wrote and prayed. Papers cast about the floor. An overturned inkwell a candelabra knocked over and burned out. There was still light, thanks to the sconces, but little else. He smirked. Convents aren't well furnished. How far from the table to the window? The room is sizable, fifteen feet, give or take. Then someone dragged her. Indeed, there were boot prints on the table. But there was the strange thing. There were only two. Two boot prints? Precisely, right in the middle of the table. O'Malley took a long breath and groped the chair's back with both hands. He pursed his lips, then said, My theory is this. If Elizabeth Crown spent fifty years in a hospital ward, she would die an ambivalent old woman. 
but if she solved this riddle, she would die tomorrow, a happy girl. There is nothing in the world of medicine that holds a candle to a mystery such as this, and if I'm right, I would gladly seek your help. But why me? Elizabeth demanded. O'Malley crooked a finger in the air. I'll tell you, Elizabeth, I promise, but only when the time is right. But where would I even start? Elizabeth said. If the police can't find the culprit, how am I supposed to? Ah, that's the thing, said O'Malley. You needn't find the culprit. No, why not? Because I already know who it is. The question isn't who, it's not even why. What I want to know is how. You've been listening to The Woman in the Sky by Robert Eisenberg. The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown is produced by Backpack Media, LLC. To learn more about Elizabeth Crown and the exciting field of uncanology, visit elizabethcrown.net. Special thanks to Naoya Sakamata for the use of her music.